0: podcast that checks up on its mother's respective mothers weekly no 20-year gap for us amanda how long has it been since Mm -hmm. you've spoken to your mother
1: i talk to my mom nearly every day there we go so
0: not (laughs) even 24 hours ago (laughs) yeah
1: i saw her about 30 minutes ago fantastic yeah that's so it's going to
0: be hard for her to maintain a reclusive vermont-based lifestyle or new hampshire yeah whatever wherever it was that quadrant of the country always kind of fades away from me. It all blurs together. <laughs> small small states, to be fair. They're pretty small. Yeah, they are. And I think I've spoken to my mother this week on the phone, I'd say, a couple days ago, I believe. Nice. Yeah, and I th- we we did email today as well, so a bit of correspondence going on early in the pandemic. I did have to establish that uh, my life is not worth a daily check-in. I mean, you know, (laughs) it's fair enough. If you live near somebody, you want to eat a meal with them, check in. I love that, but yeah, I don't know. I've gotten used to the rhythms of checking in. Not every week or something like that. I think we speak on the phone at least once a week is what I would say. Good pace for me. Well,
1: that's not bad at all. I think
0: it's a great pace for me. I you know, I can get up to something interesting and new in a week's time, but not every day. <laughs> you know, yeah. eating the same breakfast, etc. If you're unsure why we're talking about the uh, frequency of contact with our mothers. It is because today we'll be discussing the food memoir, Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabriel Hamilton, which includes a long gap in her history and relationship with her mother. This is the part two of our book club episodes on this book. So part two means it's our final episode on it. We will be doing an analytical deep dive on the whole book at this point. If you're in the wrong place, that's okay. Just go find a different podcast in the feed. We've got book recommendations up there, and we've got part one of the book club up there. We are, as I mentioned in the intro, the Lightly Literary Podcast, a book club podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. As always, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're hearing this, and tell your friends and family to join us for some book reading. Today, again, we'll be covering the whole book, so the whole thing is up for spoilers, the entire food memoir. Any thoughts, Amanda, before we dive into the specifics? Uh, No. Okay, excellent. Well, with all of the formal matters attended to and our mothers pleased, we hope... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Love you, Mom. Hopefully you're happy. <laughs> Listening to the pod, I think. My mom listens to these. Has your mom jumped in yet or no?
1: Uh, No, she has yeah. not. I'm not her, surprised by that, though.
0: Yeah, her literary life is pretty different than... And I don't even know. I should ask my mom. I haven't pressed her on it, and nor would I really. But I wonder if my mom's read any of the books we've done. I don't know if she has. Don't know if they would fit her literary interest. I think this book might, but anyway. Hmm. She listens in, though. Gives it a chance. Anyway. <laughs> let's talk about cocktail party quotes this book is a work of nonfiction, and for nonfiction books we like to do some cocktail party quotes we're going to start with this segment this week because we have to update them last week we did some quotes this week we'll do some as well these are basically just parts of the book we found intriguing and worth further discussion things for example you might bring up at a cocktail party an interesting reflection an interesting anecdote something like that that warrants discussion Amanda why don't you start us off with a quote for this uh second half of the book
1: Sure. So this uh, relates to the 20-year gap that we were just talking about Um, from page 156. Yeah. She writes, There are only five years between us, but five years is enough time for the geography and topography of a family to change dramatically, for ravines to form, trees to upend, streams to run dry. By the time is calling me at the restaurant in the hectic minutes before dinner service, excitedly hissing in my ear about this famous French chef on his way over the very next day for lunch. She's the only member of my family that I still know the entire detailed landscape of. And here she's talking about her older sister.
0: Sister. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
1: So she's, so Gabrielle Hamilton is the youngest of five children. And I find it, fascinating and just completely like out of my sphere of understanding that she only keeps in touch with one sibling right only one member of her seven member family
0: so I'm just (laughs) like
1: but I think it's interesting the way that she explains it as in like there's just so much that can happen in the years when you're not when you're busy setting up your own lives I get it Right, you're busy setting up your own lives. That's a lot of people to have to keep in touch with on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Especially with any hard feelings, having, you know, feeling abandoned in her youth as she did. So I thought that she explained it very beautifully as far as um, the metaphor to, like, the changing of, like, just nature, right? It's the nature of things to change, so...
0: Yeah, she she very frequently stumbles upon. That's kind of a crude. She finds the right metaphor, I think, for a lot of the descriptions, especially with her relationships. And she describes food, I would say, often in a very precise way. But
1: Mm -hmm. yeah,
0: it made for an odd jump, didn't it? I enjoyed the miniature story, the passage where she goes with her kids to visit. Or was she pregnant then? She was just married. Um, She had just had the baby. That's what it was. Okay. Fresh fresh baby, newborn. And yeah, when they took the trip up there to see where she lived and visit her and everything, check in. I enjoyed all that. I thought that was one of the... It was a strong moment. But the fact that it's not really explained, she does kind of hand wave a bit, which, you know, it's her story, her relationship to food, her memories, and the order she wants to present them. But it is especially considering the opening part of the book the blood section which is basically about her family really and then to j- jump like that without a ton of backstory yeah it's jarring for sure you have to accept that that's she's just kind of moving from scene to scene I don't think I don't know if in the end I look back at this thinking it's a really cohesive one kind of tale but instead just a bunch of compelling scenes or something
1: yeah that's I think a perfect explanation of this. And I was just thinking, too, about, like, how in this, uh, with her going to see her mom after 20 years, she had just had a baby, but also her brother Todd, who had bailed her out.
0: Yes, um, yes. Before. Lawyer, um, well, banking guy who knew a lawyer.
1: Right, yeah, the Wall Street brother. He died, right? And so that came out of, like, nowhere. And she doesn't even tell us, like, more about it until, like, two chapters later when she's like, oh, yeah, he died by by stroke. And I'm like okay, why is this information here and not, like, back there? And it's just, yeah, it's very, yeah, just uh, the organization just throws me a mm-hmm. lot.
0: Mm-hmm. You definitely have to be up for that, too, and ready for those yeah. changes. I pulled the cocktail party quote from the scene with her mother, too. I thought it was one of the more kind of kind. It was kind of gentle. It's teasing, but also I found it kind of gentle, too, from 191. She realizes, at last, the afternoon has passed and it has gotten dark. Michelle opens in Aglanico. The the things she drinks and eats in this book, I'm like, man, I my palate is. <laughs> I, think, I think I cook pretty well for myself or whatever, but good grief. Yeah, like the wine references. <laughs> yeah, not a chance. Anyway, it's a wine. A real beauty, but my mom declines. She's accustomed to a little cocktail, she says, that she really prefers to anything else anymore. I watch as she pours some blackberry schnapps, white jug wine, and a tablespoon of brandy into a jelly jar over ice cubes. I am stunned. My mother is drinking some sort of shitty wine cooler. Torpedo juice. My snobbish, superior mother. The woman who taught me everything I know, delectable and odious alike, has been shed, and here before me is a new woman. A woman that anyone meeting for the first time would find perfectly lovely. Which is a great way to finish that paragraph and is a good dig at herself, because it's clear that... She doesn't word it this way, but Hamilton holds resentments, probably many rightfully held from her childhood and the way her mother kind of hoisted her taste upon them, kind of a French, she calls it bourgeoisie at some point, taste. Yeah. And that became kind of their family ethos or whatever. And so this whole turn enjoying a what sounds like a perfectly fine cocktail drink, maybe not exceptional, but whatever. It's She's not drinking a 40 out of a bag. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, she's always trying something, mixing it up. <laughs> And so, yeah, her reaction to it is to kind of, she does at least dig it herself a little, and I think it's rightfully turned on her. Also, I don't know, 20 years is such a vast, to use her own language, on her like mountain of time. And so to think that a person would stay still and stagnant in 20 years, I mean, of course, some traits stick around, but certainly things like taste, preferences like that will change. And. Yeah. So I just thought it was such a lovely turn. And and I enjoyed the way that paragraph ends with kind of an admittance that maybe she's been being a little holding this grudge or being a little bit stubborn for a little bit too long. And so I, I thought that her mother's transformation was pretty. I don't know. I don't I don't think that reflection takes hold in a deep way in the memoir or something that she like changed her perceptions of people after that. But it was good to see it in there, I guess
1: yeah she even said like at the end of that didn't she say that oh i know what she's doing she's actually doing the the switchin switchin bait
0: yes yeah right? she assumed or bait
1: and switch i don't know what the that's the term it is.
0: bait and switches
1: yeah okay there you go <laughs> so it's it's clear that she still doesn't trust her mom and that she still has a lot of those issues that she's hanging on to but that she's seeing that perhaps she was maybe a little bit harsher mm-hmm. in her yeah. perspectives of her mom But but then again, like you said, we don't really see like she doesn't interact with her again. And like when they're leaving, she's like, my mom purposefully didn't talk about us coming back. And I purposely avoided it, too. Like, it's just not Mm -hmm. no real change there, which is interesting.
0: Yeah, there are some real just real narrative drop offs, which the more I thought about it, the more I think it kind of works in a way. But it might just not be the memoir people expect it to be. I think that's part of it, too. Yeah. It, it's I, I think in my mind I guess looking back on the entire structure now it's it's more committed to the food than the relationships I think I think that's the the kind yep. of takeaway in a sense which feels fitting enough but does make for some kind of jolty reading at times um yeah. other quote for you what are you thinking
1: oh yeah um so uh, it's funny because i I took the same scene actually that you were just describing yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I took something different away from that and it's um, from page 28 20- 88. But seeing her now and how uncannily similar we are, I fear that it won't be long before I too am so obsessed with thrift that I have manifested my own poverty and am holding my socks up with rubber bands. How far down the path am I already if I make prunes, dishwashers, nest the bowls properly after they are washed? How can it be after all this concentrated effort and separation? How can it be that I still resemble so very closely my own detestable mother? Um. So I found that really interesting that she she sees the similarities between like some of the obsessions to detail that her mother had um, in the same way. And then she and the things that she like so remembered about her mom and kind of like looked down on her mom about and like really disagreed with her mom about were actually things that she had like were the things that she was already starting to do and stuff. And she goes on to say that it's not that detestable. I mean, it's a, it's a good thing to have all these things. But even with that in her mind, knowing that it's not actually that bad and that she is pretty similar to her mom, she still doesn't quite make the effort to reconnect with her mom, really, which I yeah, really Yeah, it's unclear
0: whether she ends up reaching out again or anything like that later in her life. But yeah. this... The scene kind of holds as just a, I think it unsettles her enough, or at least it unsettled my impression of her enough to make me think she's at least self-aware about maybe some of these habits she's held or some of these ideas she's held. It's unquestionable though, and the book kind of format makes this clear that her mother influenced her taste in food and her approach to food, how she views it as kind of a simplistic pleasure not to be done with too many frills or too many adornments. And you want to be kind of holistic in your mindset about it. And so even even in the sense, the hospitality that she kind of I know that the trip in Europe we talked about in part one is a big influence in that. But also, you know, the way that the party was such a monumental event and she opens with that and everything. So, yeah, it's not like she can outrun the influence. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, especially when we see um, Alda, uh, Michelle's Mm -hmm. mom and like how much she absolutely like worships Alda. Um, versus yes. her relationship with her actual mother. I, I found that interesting because um, Alda's relationship to food is pretty similar, actually, to um, Gabrielle Hamilton's mom's relationship to food. So they're very similar mm-hmm. in a lot of ways as well. And it's just interesting to see how she she clings to Alda, but very much like pulls away from her own mother.
0: Yeah, it's almost as if Hamilton needs a person of silence to... I don't know if it's like so she can project things onto them or so she can relate without having kind of spats or encounters with them. It's mm-hmm. not like she's constantly fighting with people in the book, but it's clear in her writing that she um, has a pretty intense view of things and is can be combative or something. Is it her, she's going to make sure her opinions are felt or something. It's I, Again, I, we said aggressive in the first one, which I wasn't quite sure was the right word. I still don't know. Her writing style is something like that, though. Even if that's yeah. not the perfect description, so it's just with all that you know, the fact that they can barely speak to each other. Though she does conclude the book on kind of a touching scene. Um, yeah, I agree. And so, and then there's the was it the essay afterward, the bonus where she goes back alone after the divorce? Is that that part, or was that in the book?
1: That was separate from the book, but it's at the okay. very very end. Bonus. Yeah.
0: Okay, I think that's an essential addendum onto the book then, because I mm-hmm. yeah, to end it on that, it, it was a much more hopeful thing than a lot of the tone of the book took. So I just thought that mm-hmm. was an interesting – if we want to call that the true ending or something, then it's an interesting way to wrap it up, I think, totally. Anyway, no, yeah, the way that all the changes her perceptions or reinforces some, I thought was pretty potent. I'm going to pull another quote, a couple of them here that I just thought made for intriguing writing reflections. One is from 216, and it's about – no, I think her having – this feels like such a – I hope I don't say anything through this really egregious-sounding lens – on this podcast I was about to say it in a way that I, I didn't like, but I'll, I'll phrase it the way I was going to say it. I think when she has kids, it really unlocks something in her comparisons and language. Not that is, of course, not to say that, you know, she had to be a mother to become who she was or what I am I, not trying to put some weird misogynist slant. But when she writes about motherhood and the way she connects it to food, I thought it was some of the best stuff. It also, yeah. it doesn't take away her edge, I don't think, either. It it has a lot of the same tone, but for some reason, I guess with just the simple truth of how hard raising kids is, it, it maybe just works a bit better. Maybe it helps kind of soften it just a touch or something. I don't know. I just thought it was some of the best stuff. And so I pulled this quote about when she's kind of um, taking care of her really young child, there's a paragraph It says, and then when the suckling critter arrives, you will just fold that into your day like you have all the other leaking, sticky, oozy fluids you've been handling for the past decade. Every time you have to change the diaper of a non-compliant kid, you'll be reminded of every chicken you've ever trust and every eel you've ever had to wrangle. Petulant adolescents who just want to borrow money, raid the refrigerator, and talk on the phone with their friends about what a bitch you are? That will be a piece of cake once you've managed a front-of-house staff, declined the bartender her vacation request, and uneasily loaned the new line cook her first and last month's rent deposit on her new West Village apartment knowing full well you'll never see that money again. And that's she's reflecting, obviously, on her time as a restaurateur and then being a mom. And I, you know, she's got the word choice going as always. She's she's hitting these perfect little moments of punchiness and everything. But it also, mm-hmm. it was maybe one of the more cogent moments I thought, where she finally gave us a comparison in a literal way of like, here's how, here's my mentality. This is how I approach my life as a chef. And now even as a person, this is why I think it's been valuable. I thought it was just one of the more clear moments. And I think with the kids, some of those, that clarity came through in the second half of this book. And I think, you know, for the better, not that it becomes sentimental, but it does, I think, gain a clarity maybe when in that mm-hmm. second half, when she's raising the kids and they're doing the Italy trips. That that wasn't from that, by the way, that was at the conference with the women yeah. uh, chefs. But yeah, I, it's still a similar moment, though.
1: Yeah, Um, I I also really enjoy her, her descriptions of motherhood uh, and like how hectic it is. And I'm just like, yep. Yeah, Yeah, especially like what I find really interesting, too, is her descriptions of, in particular, breastfeeding. And of course, like with breastfeeding, that is their food. And so she would be like, just based on the rest of the memoir, of course, she's going to describe that. Really well, and in like a unique way. Yeah, and I just yeah. some of the best quotes were were from her descriptions of that and how she she. Feels like food in a lot of ways. And I, I think that that's so great. There's she does two, such a great job with it. Two that.
0: quotes I'm having a vague recollection of. I definitely won't go pull them. It would take too long. But there's at one point she describes breast milk as kind of like the sweet goodness or something like that. It was yeah. like a very complimentary thing for a, a food that I don't think many people can actually describe, though I'm sure I, I'm probably mothers either. either purposefully or indirectly probably get a taste of their own stuff at some point gosh i mean i would assume that just happens somehow (laughs) but i don't know but it's just like that's a food or sustenance that not many people can actually describe you know so i thought that was kind of just a poignant little moment and then there's another time she describes one of the kids who was resting after nursing is kind of, she probably put a curse word in there, but it was kind of like he was fucked up and dazed on the, on the drink or something like that. And it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah it's just these little moments of, you know, she keeps it punchy, but for some reason it's just that little touch, more humane feeling when it's th- with the kids stuff. Yeah. I agree. So yeah. Any other quotes that you want to end on or throw out there for consideration? Yeah,
1: sure. Um, this one is, I thought it was interesting cause it, it um, introduces a new aspect to her writing and it's from page 222. Mm-hmm. I've never been able to identify or understand my class. I think we were raised as bourgeoisie, but I'm not even sure what the term means. Shop owners? And I remember it being spit out in the more derogatory way in the books that I loved the most when I was in college. I think it's considered loathsome. I'm comfortable upstairs and downstairs. And then she goes on to explain that she You know, he's a hard worker and she does the lowly jobs as well as like the the owner jobs and all that stuff. So I found that interesting because she also goes on later to talk about um, Michelle, her husband, and the way that he grew up really wealthy. But then we see that his villa is like, I mean, literally falling apart. Um, Yeah. 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 So I thought that was really interesting to, to introduce that other concept.
0: Completely, One of the more compelling final kind of twists of the book, I thought. Yeah. What did you make of the dilapidation? I mean, she does does the thing that she must do, of course, which is ends the book on a scene where she tries to fix it all, puts in the elbow, labor, you know, does the work.
1: Yeah. Reorganizes, right. She reorganizes the kitchen, of course, and then she Mm -hmm. goes and kind of, like, starts trimming it down and improving it. So it's, like, I guess symbolically, like – she, she loves Alda so much that her mother-in-law and like is really unhappy with Michelle at this point. And they were like on the, she, she mentioned that when they got home that they would definitely be, you know, talking about divorce. Um, but I, I saw it all as like, she's changing the things about that. And it's like her. Michelle's family is like her hopes and her dreams almost her aspirations for connection and family and so by improving that and changing that she's changing perhaps her her ideals and her dreams and I found that to be more hopeful and more of like she herself might be changing her expectations of others which will help to improve her Um, relationships with others
0: now she does drop allusions in the text to that they did marriage therapy counseling something like that but a relationship so ill-conceived from the start and so ill-tended because i the book in no way i would be fascinated it's you know i'm fascinated by her of course she's lived quite a life i interviews with her would be interesting I'd love to see what her husband had to say after finishing this book, not even <laughs> yeah. that it portrays him in such a negative way. He's such a non in such a non way. He's such a non person, right. in a sense, yep. to, in her mind, in her calculation, which it just all feels very stunning i you would the simple thing would be to call it one-sided but that doesn't really do it justice it's it's almost like it's one-sided because the other side is a void entity not because she's ignoring him or something it's very weird <laughs> um, but yeah i guess i shouldn't judge relationships from the outside but i don't think she goes out of her way to make it seem not weird she the way she repeats that phrase italian italian and she's kind of Going through the with a lot of people she knows, trying to explain it to them, and they're all jealous of her life. And she just is a robot response. She just is a, yeah. she has a canned response, just kind of to convey like a shoulder shrug. Like I guess I should like this more. I don't really know. It's just anyway, the whole thing is bizarre. I thought I didn't pull a quote from their relationship just because. I guess it's how she she conveyed it with a lot of truth. I have to respect it. Felt very slapdash to me, I guess. But maybe they just had a slapdash relationship with two kids. I don't... (laughs) I guess that happens.
1: Her... her, The way that she approaches her relationship with Michelle, I think, is very complex. I don't even think she really understands it. Because she mentions, like... Mm -hmm. Yeah. That he was saying that he wanted to, he he needed the green card, but yes. also that he wanted to marry her because he's romantically involved and, like, he, he loves her. And right. she's, like, emphasizing that, okay, I'll marry you, but only because of the green card thing. But then later she's upset because she's like, well, why isn't he, like, interested in, in maintaining the romance and stuff after she's been beating it in his head that she's only marrying him for the green card and And stuff. I just find their relationship just fascinating. I'm like, Wow, (laughs) and there's
0: and there's too many missing holes in the in the tapestry for me to like render a judgment or something. But it's all they don't live together either. It's just like I don't. don't. Which you know I understand how that can spark intimacy and like keep the mystery. What again? You know, people in your relationships you figure it out. I don't. I don't. I'm not have answers. (laughs) I'm not a therapist. I don't have answers. But like, there's just enough in here for me to wonder at so many things that I'll. I guess we'll just never know. But yeah, his. You know the, their final splintering over the iPhone comment. When in her head she was imagining doing the 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 feast, and like there there's just such a mismatch of expectations in this thing that I, I don't yeah. know how their therapy went. She mentions it explicitly, the counseling. So I don't know Who, who's to say, but it does make for a very odd ending. I I did like look
1: up to this is not in the in the memoir, but I looked up very quickly her uh, Wikipedia page, and she is remarried now um, to a woman, so she's. Um, They definitely did not make it.
0: (laughs) Right, 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 right. That's unsurprising. No, no, I yeah, very unsurprising indeed. And I don't think she is ungenerous to him. She shows him doing some active parenting. Maybe even there's a line there about him being a great parent. But yeah, so yeah,
1: she does say that, and she says that like when she's in the red zone, like with her blood sugar drops and stuff. Mm -hmm. He's like really accommodating, and he's actually quite attentive in some ways but she also has the line where she's like he knows exactly how to abandon me which is to like just emotionally and stuff like that he he can abandon her so quickly in a lot of ways so
0: Yeah, I pulled one final quote to that I want to get to before the essays which is just her kind of general philosophy on maybe even her own whole life experience about being badass. And mm-hmm. so she, this is a couple quotes. I'm going to splice this together. This is from two pages. She says, keeping your shit together in front of your crew, no matter what, is badass. Maybe even driving out to Ikea to pick up 30 white china plates and get back by dinner service the day before you were going to give birth is badass. But badass is the last thing I'm interested in being. It's a juvenile aspiration. At 13, when I was selling, stealing cars and smoking cigarettes, I wanted to be badass. I was cultivating badass. At 16, coked out of my head and slinging chili at the cafe, I was the understudy to badass, and I knew all her lines and cues. At 25, blow torching my way through the waiter house, uh, sorry, warehouse catering kitchens, cranking out back-to-back doubles and napping in between on the office floor with my head on a pile of aprons and checked pants, I was authentically badass. And then she talks about you know. At 38 and pregnant, she says that disgusts me while I would never want or hope to be the type of pregnant woman who would doze languidly in the afternoons while playing Mozart tapes to her womb, being down on the mats with a soapy green scrubby and rowling my unborn fetus with a string of expletives to make a trucker blush. Well, that is certainly not the woman I meant to grow up to be either. So it's she does seem like a person of extremes, a chef of extremes, maybe a just a philosopher of extremes, but it i think there is a reading of her life I, the, maybe badass wouldn't wouldn't have been the term i would have used tough it's just clear she's never shied from work you know from labor right. from putting in the work doing the work trying to understand it in a way perfect it but it seems like she also was content to be sloppy for a while too like just doing it to do it not doing it intelligently i think that's probably changed you know over time and maybe mm-hmm. that's her philosophy now So she doesn't want to be perceived as lazy or entitled, but also, you know, maybe working a little smarter than doing coke and like working doubles or whatever. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, I just thought if there was a moment in this book and the reason I guess I pulled it for cocktail party quote would be, I guess, one, it's always interesting to talk about people's jobs, how they feel about them what you know, what they like, dislike. But I think that's probably the most concise version of her philosophy. If I had to pick a moment from the book.
1: Yeah, the. And what she also says about herself um, is that, yeah, maybe she's not um, always, like, sure about her actions and stuff like that. But she's like, I do have a good work ethic. And that's the one thing she really takes pride in, um, in herself. And that's one aspect of her personality that she's not going to belittle in any way. Yeah. So, which isn't an admirable quality for sure. And it definitely got her through some really tough times.
0: Yeah, there's a huge lull between her adolescence, college, whatever that was, and then the she opens a restaurant and becomes, like, kind of a darling of the New York restaurant scene and everything, and people respect her and everything. There's that... she, I think she did the catering thing for, like, 15 years. It's not... It wasn't just a short spell of, eh, I did that for a couple years, it didn't turn out, or I was in... You know, it was... That was a huge chunk of her life, too. The book yeah. does go through it quickly, to be fair, but... Yeah, it's that was not just a short spell. That was like she dedicated a good chunk of her life to doing that. So anyway, let's talk about essays. We like to do on the book club part two. Anyway, we like to do imaginary essays where each of us has prepared a prompt to give the other person. It's a way that we basically like to analyze and think about the book. It gives us a lens through which to understand it talk about it, discuss some of the deeper issues at play. Of course, we have not prepared actual essays. So if you're hearing this for the first time, don't be shocked. We're just going to talk through an outline, give hypothetical answers, kind of. yeah, It's more like an outline format than an actual prepared thing. But we have done some things in advance. You typed up a lot of quotes for this one. That's kind of, I think that's wild. <laughs> a lot of quotes. You got old old habits die hard, I guess, in the English world. <laughs>
1: I, was, I just said that as a as a reminder to myself. That's I'm not fine. necessarily going to read all.
0: <laughs> I, that's fine. No, no, no. And you could, I was just thinking, I, you probably noticed in the outlines, I've given up typing quotes at all anymore. I just put the page and then I have the book here. I just, yeah. I was typing the quotes for a while and then I. Yeah, work, work smarter, not harder, I guess. Anyway, so <laughs> I'll throw mine to you as as per usual, Amanda, first. My prompt for you is that I've consumed a lot of food media during the pandemic times, the COVID times. Uh, we're recording this, by the way, in April. This will probably come out in like the summer. We're pretty far ahead <laughs> yeah. on these anyway, but, you know, it's Woohoo. COVID is on the mind. Whenever you hear this, it's we're still living it uh, very much. But, and, and even before that, I was doing a lot of food media. The one that came to mind was this Dave Chang show. He's a famous chef who has a podcast that I've listened to many of the episodes of. There's also YouTube shows. I watch TV about it. There's all kinds of food media. And the number of times that people advise against going into the restaurant industry is staggering. I would say it's almost universal. There, I've almost never heard a chef in any of these media avenues recommend doing it. Never. I almost literally never, ever. <laughs> they don't recommend yeah. going to culinary school. They don't recommend doing the job. They they will of course give advice. Like if you're determined or, you know, if it's like, well, if there's no other way, then here's, I guess what you should do, but it's always so reticent. It's always the first thing is like, do not do this, but mm-hmm. I guess if you have to, here you go. Um, <laughs> so I, my take, my thing, finishing this book, is basically what does this have to say about being a chef then both directly or indirectly um how is gabriel hamilton a case study about what it means to be a chef so like how could someone reading this wanting to know more about this world what would they take away about chef about a chef what's your takeaway
1: um so uh, i would say my my one of my big takeaways is um that A chef is not somebody who works in catering.
0: Um, (laughs) Interesting. Yeah.
1: According to her. Bit of elitism. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, Which is funny because she, like, bucks against elitism too. But um, anyway, (laughs) so um, with catering, she said that catering is all about the look of things, of the superficial ability to create foods that will please the eye. For example, she, like, talks about how the food was, like, fit for a king, and she was just, like, kind of – internally freaking out that the king decided to give a speech in the middle of like dessert and all the ice cream melted um but it was more of like a factory work in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and not the um actual cooking so catering is just almost like factory for her and all about the way that things look and she also points that out when um she's having the a blood sugar crisis with Michelle in the back seat and the two kids in the yeah. back seat and yeah. he's like trying to get her to eat like anything right and um this is from page 259 and 260 she says Michelle who eats indiscriminately and in his good-natured Italian way thinks everything is nice and good tries to get me to pull over and park and go to one of the pretentious restaurants on Smith Street that minor league stretch of Brooklyn that always disappoints, and I just can't. I would rather starve and kill my children, Medea-like, than eat the truffle oil omelet with chorizo foam and piquillo peppers at Solil or Bluebird or whatever those restaurants are called on that stretch. She's, like, looks so down on these uh, restaurants that use new technologies and, like, different ingredients that are, like... Big, splashy words and names and stuff like right. that. but Trends. <laughs> don't necessarily, like, fulfill. Mm-hmm. And so she... And she even admits at one point that she was, like, kind of, like, thinking about using a sous vide, which... By the way, I have a sous vide, and I think it's amazing. It's so convenient. Anyway. People do swear
0: <laughs> by them. I have at least one other close friend who swears by his. I don't... The thing, I was on the slow cooker thing for a while. I still like the convenience of it at times. I don't know if any, ultimately, any device is going to hold up for me over a long period. Like, I think I'd be fascinated by the sous vide for a short spell and then would kind of just forget it's there in a way. But I, it's pretty much inarguably, the science of it is pretty inarguable. Like, it's it's precise to a level that is unbeatable in a, in a way.
1: It is great for cooking meat. Um, yeah, yeah, because it keeps all the moisture and like, I, I love it. And, yeah. um, when I cook pork, I use it. And yeah, when we made yeah. the turkey this year, we use it. And it was just like, I mean, it was great. There was nothing dry. So, right. um, anyway, but she looks down on all of that. Um, because that is not necessarily like chef skill, right? That's just, relying on new technologies and stuff like that. So yeah, um, that's one aspect of being a chef is that it's it's not about convenience and it's not about the flash of things, right? It's not about uh, the big splash that you can make with your uh, menu. It's It should be something more meaningful than that. Mm-hmm. And so what being a chef actually is versus catering or being like a fake chef, I guess, Um, (laughs) according to her, Mm -hmm. there are several aspects to what it means to be a chef. So one of the things is, um, being a chef means cooking honestly and looking to fill people's stomachs with the best ingredients, which is what she advertises with prune and, um, putting care and forethought into the menu and into what you want to serve these people. Like you Mm -hmm. would want to make food that you yourself would eat and that you yourself would give to a loved one. Um, so it doesn't have to be this fancy stuff, but it has to be something that is delicious and thoughtful and well put together for more than just, like, the the appeal of it, but also just how things work together on the plate and stuff like that. Um, and we can see, uh, especially with, like, the idea of... Um, how important it is that to her that the ingredients are fresh right in italy she buys from the one old dude every time what a symbol Um, too what a figure i
0: think in the back half of the book fascinating
1: yep and and also in the very beginning we see um her discussions of like just going out in nature and not going to the supermarket right like i mean she's Mm -hmm it's almost like she's never been to a supermarket the way that she talks in this, in this memoir. Right. Um, Right. um, So that's very important to her. And um, another thing is that being a chef means hospitality. And here we see that with the three female figures in her life, we see that with Misty, who was the, the, like her mentor in um, Michigan. Mm -hmm, Yeah. And there's Alda, Michelle's mother. And even her own parents in her youth before the divorce, <clears throat> all of it was about making people feel welcome and loved and creating a sense of family. So the hospitality aspect, the the embracing of everybody with love and putting that into the food is, I think, a big, for her, a big component of, of being a chef. Um, And then uh, another one is the idea of adaptability and flexibility. So when you were talking about um, the the badass um, paragraph there, being able to juggle so many aspects of your life. And that also um, relates to the other point that I was going to make with this is that you have to also prioritize the job and completely pour yourself into it. Yeah. like everything into it, which is what she also was talking about in chapter 16, that that whole scene with like going to the the women's cooking college expo thing. Um,
0: yeah, bet- between that episode and then her, I forgot what the other one was, the other moment, I guess the discussions of her husband's status in Italy, their class, those are the most, I guess, kind of outwardly political current events type moments where she has, She gives kind of some views on, I don't know, issues of the world, right? Like the status of women Mm -hmm. in the workplace, feminism, and then also her ideas of class and what that means, what it represents and everything. So those did feel like they they pressed upon the most current event-y type issues. I'm not sure how you felt about those, but.
1: Yeah, for sure. I was like, and I actually found those parts really interesting too. Like I didn't think that
0: it detracted (laughs)
1: from the memoir at all. I I found those really fascinating to read.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that was kind of the the part with the women was, I mean, it showed off her signature style, which was to have an emotion embedded in one paragraph and then flip the switch in the next. That happens, I feel yeah. like, pretty often where she's sort yeah. of vacillating really quickly between her perspectives, feelings, whatever. But what, what so, yeah, and she seemed like she stayed mostly silent in that moment. Do you feel like at the conference, she you come away with an idea of how she wants women to be as chefs?
1: Yeah, I I think that I do. And I found it fascinating, too, that she felt like she could not voice herself even among right. the women, right? She's surrounded by women and, and her counterparts in the field. And she feels like she's being, like, silenced in a lot of ways um, by yeah. the very people that she should feel like she's in arms with. But, um, yeah, I, I, I got a good understanding as far as, like, that chapter. I think that she came to an understanding of, like, how much harder she has had to work um, Mm -hmm. without even realizing it until that moment. And, like, how important it is that these women understand that it is going to be difficult, like, the the platitudes that are offered by the rest of the panelists about, like, especially when the the one uh, person asks, like, can I still have a family? (laughs) And they're just like, yeah, you can do it. What? good job yeah we're so strong and women can do anything and um hamilton is sitting there like uh it is so hard they need to be honest about how difficult
0: mm-hmm. it is and to right. let
1: them know that if you choose this it's not going to be like an easy road and just to be i think that she she made it very clear to herself and to the reader
0: yeah, the, the how quote difficult you, her journey is the quote you pulled from 214 is kind of that if you wanted to share that because that's yeah. i think that's what she wanted to say at the conference in some form or fashion and just yeah, didn't get a couldn't. chance to yeah, yeah. It just kind of withheld and she was maybe a little too bitter about things or something that day for to share um, yeah but yeah she does have a bit of a philosophy though to share She does.
1: Um, And the quote is from 214. I was thinking about the pleasure, the sheer pleasure of killing the line on a busy night, setting those tickets up and knocking them down of the knives laid out neatly on the magnet, the worn wooden cutting boards, the feel of the cool, silky flower every time you dip in with the measuring cup of sitting down with everybody after work and drinking cocktails, telling grossly distorted tales of your own heroics on the line that night. Um, And then she goes on to say on the next page. There's multitasking, answering questions on the phone, cooking something, and trying to monitor a line cook while hearing your name repeated possibly six or seven hundred times in less than eight hours—a choking patron, a grease fire, a badly cut employee, on and on and on—which um, she says prepares her to be a mother, actually. But <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> um, yeah.
1: all these like hectic things. But then there's still the love of of the job and the satisfaction of seeing your work completed at the end of the night and and the camaraderie that comes with something that can be so stressful to you.
0: The amount of, as I referenced earlier, I'm going to try and thread a couple needles here, but hopefully we'll do so. I've consumed a good amount of food media in the last couple of years in, in many shapes, forms, fashions and she she employs this here on two fourteen the amount of language that that becomes warlike when people talk about it, especially mm-hmm. it seems like the French systems of cooking in it kind of inspire this the most, but a lot of people talk about it that way. you're battling, you're fighting, it's hot, hours are long, it's dangerous it's and then at the end of it all you're like she says, swapping distorted stories and it's all heroics. it yeah. does appeal to that kind of desire mindset. I feel like a lot of. The early and Bourdain, Anthony Bourdain, famous food critic, um, also chef, but he spoke of it that way too in his memoir. That's he got kind of famous for portraying it as this battle type of world and you're fighting and all that stuff. I and so here's what I have to thread it with there, um, there there's an article in the New York Times earlier in the pandemic, way earlier, uh, that she wrote, Hamilton wrote. And I think the basic thesis of it was, does the world have a use for my restaurant anymore? Does, should it even exist now? You know, pre-pandemic, very different now that the pandemic's happening. And it really poignant piece, I'd recommend people, if you've listened this far, just go check it out. She writes just as well there about the restaurant and how they were suffering and everything. It was brutal on restaurants. Obviously, COVID was. And when I see and hear that language, I ask a similar question. I mean, it's not related to COVID, but there is a baseline thing here of like, why do we have to keep this going if this is the only way to do it? Then, if this profession requires this language, why are we glorifying or deifying this? If we can't fix it, you know, if there's no better way, if people can't work a reasonable amount, if people can't be stable in it, if people have to suffer to do it, it. I mean, p- people would of course debate that maybe it's considered an art form, and some art requires some bit of suffering, and that's. I don't know. I guess people will always seek that out or something, but this is like a systematized societal need kind of a thing. I just, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I it's as someone who loves cooking at home and never feels suffered, it never feels in danger or uh, as, as a person who's suffering doing it, who enjoys the fruits of that immediate labor, that kind of thing. I, it's something I've tried to understand, and I think you just have to work in a professional environment to get it. I don't think any home cook can even comprehend it. It's, it's. I've kind of sought it out in a way, almost to try and understand it better. And I, I don't know if I have a better depth of understanding. But when she poses that question, obviously it was more of a COVID type of thing. But mm-hmm. given this language and how she talks about it in the book, and then also given, you know, what the other media I've consumed, yeah, I don't know. I just do we need like 50% fewer restaurants in the world and 50% more people trying recipes at home they learn on YouTube? Like, is it, why is that bad? I don't, (laughs) I, and again, I know that seems drastic maybe, but when, when I just hear the tales and all that stuff, the conditions and yeah, like what's the point ultimately, I I guess I'll learn how to make braised oxtail at home. If I want to, it'll be, you know, 50% less good, but people won't have to write like this to have made it one time. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's too broad a point.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That's something that I'd have to sit and think on. <laughs> yeah. It's
0: just something I've thought about. And it, mostly I wanted to plug her New York times article cause it was really poignant. It was very touching and you could tell very heartfelt, but I don't know if it's a Stockholm syndrome thing with the way mm-hmm. that she's forced to work and live her life. It's just like, mm-hmm. Is the thing you're producing worth this? I think she would very much say yes because of, like you nailed in the description of what she believes a chef to be. She, I mm-hmm. think, feels the warmth of the hospitality she's given. Right? There's no doubting yeah. it. There's just no. It, that's happened. Like it's she created an ambiance. She fed people better than well, and so it's you know. And I get that. Nothing better than a three-hour dinner and just get really going in and feeling the warmth of it all. But I don't know. It just, some of the language that comes out of it is. I guess that's what some people want, though. There's a reason people sign up for that kind of thing. I think, anyway. But no, fascinating stuff about what a chef is. Did it change your view of going into a like the next time you walk into a local restaurant? Do you do you think differently now?
1: I've I've worked in the. When I was doing my undergrad, actually, I was um, mm-hmm. a student manager at the cafeteria, so I had to make food and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but that's more like almost catering the stuff that she would hate doing. Very um, mechanical, yeah. Yeah, very mechanical and stuff like that, and, and I have friends who have worked as like line cooks and stuff like that, and I know the amount of stress that they go through, so I've always mm-hmm. been very appreciative of...
0: <laughs> Me too, of totally. Of that,
1: yeah, and I also waitressed for a
0: while, and... Yeah, I'm. I totally appreciate all of that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's it does. I guess this is my feelings towards this, or my thoughts have only evolved the more I've cooked for myself, which has really been like a more than decade long experience journey however you want to phrase it so i but the more i get used to cooking at home and the more the internet democratizes recipes and food also we live in the u.s very privileged i can like go find whatever ingredients i want more or less you know it's like there's not food scarcity here and i don't live in a food desert and there's also like too much choice anyway so if i have Mm -hmm. some kind of new thing i want to try i could reasonably go pull it off which is all leads me to say like i i don't know i i i'm not sure why we have to keep a system running that seems so cruel (laughs) like for for what for our pleasures like learn how to cook you can learn anything via the internet almost (laughs) about cooking and recipes and there's infinite information and again i don't yeah i don't know maybe i'm sounding more harsh on this than i thought but but the language right that she deploys herself the battle of it all the struggle the strife like i guess some people really find that and kind of valorize it and everything and that's that's her point of view that's fine but I, yeah i don't know i every time she described the harshness and raggedness of it i don't know it was kind of i in the back of my mind i couldn't help thinking like yeah but for to what end i guess you know yeah that is it's tough. pretty
1: harsh but i mean in the end she she talks about how much she really loves it and how yeah. accomplished she feels about it so
0: and then you know and she applies it to her own life and family and that's that creates yeah. significant meaning she hopefully does that. She does when she ends up cooking in Italy a lot. Those scenes were very touching. You know, it really—I thought that part was was really good. It was good to see it in a maybe a context that didn't feel as harsh or something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, just I—I I had to ramble on those thoughts. Also, again, wanted to plug the Times article because it—it's yeah. definitely a more—it's way more somber than this. Uh, well, obviously, because it's her restaurant. I think is done now. It had to close. Yeah, but she was yeah trying to hang on as long as she could. I think to that. All right, let me wrap up my digressions there. Thanks for humoring me. Um, but I'll throw it to you now, Amanda. Why don't you throw the, the essay prompt you've prepared for me and I'll do my best here.
1: Sure. Um, so I've talked about this book's organization and how unconventional it is in that it isn't chronological. And the transitions between the ideas and the times that she mentions are near mysteries for paragraphs at a time. Um, so What is this memoir actually organized around? Really, what is the purpose of this memoir and how does the organization relate to it?
0: Yeah, the more I had to answer this, the more appreciative of it I became, though it is rather sort of like when you're in a hurricane, it's chaos and disaster. And then when you see a satellite image, you're like, well, it's kind of a beautiful little circle, nature whipped up. What a a geometric (laughs) pleasure or something. But it's, you know, when you're in it, it feels insane. And then when you you know, have a top level view, it doesn't feel that way. This this is similar in just that when I was forced to think about it, now I opted for the simplistic thing. Let's not overthink this, shall we? I'm I wanna think through the blood, bones and butter. Those are the segments of the book. They're not equal. Mm-hmm. The bones part is like double the length of the other ones, I think. It's the majority of it. The meat of it is in the the bones. But it opens with blood and then bones and butter. So I think that was where my brain went. I also didn't want to overcomplicate this. I'm gonna ride with what her structure was. So so the blood part is clearly the family part now that i look at it and see where it ends it's the only time we really know her father at all and it's one of the only times we know her mother and so it's you know it's her childhood it's her youth she's rambunctious living wild and free it's the influences of them culinarily and and otherwise i think so it is kind of the it's the fundamentals that to use a food metaphor the table setting i guess it's kind of and when I think about the name to blood, it's it's a bit simple. It's elemental, inextricable. It's this thing that, you know, it gives you life. And I think if you're going to analyze her as kind of a you know, character person, obviously, she's a person, but you have to understand where those came from, where her ideas about cuisine, you know, that her mom cooked simple food, they foraged a lot. It was understated even at the what the, was it lamb roast? chicken or no gender chicken way too small lamb lamb there we go even that was pretty unadorned maybe there was one herb in there you know they slap some butter on it and then just cook it for a long it's it wasn't like they were dressing it up with a hundred herbs and it so it's all simple presentation of things thoughtfully chosen but also like it's the time when i think if you know her temperament from the blood section the rest of the book does make sense despite its extremities so She experienced family abandonment, essentially. She went through a wild young phase. She spent $90,000 on cocaine one year or something like that. Anyway, or wasted the night. You know, she was living very recklessly, very wild, untamed. And so the the final scene of her failing to slaughter the chicken, really haphazardly getting blamed, or kind of um, critiqued by her father about it, it felt fitting enough that it's kind of... It ended with a pretty uncertain moment of of this like violence. And, and I don't, I don't know if we would say that her family did violence to her. The, the term violence seems to be shifting under our feet these days. I see it thrown around kind of like verbal violence. So I I don't want to unpack that, but it, it felt fitting enough to be this kind of, intense ending where that's the effect her family had on her I think so if you look mm-hmm. at it through that lens I think the opening kind of makes sense as an opening salvo it's not very long but it does set the tone and kind of establish some of the patterns of her character I don't know how you feel about that did you yeah. feel that in the moment or looking back or does that none of that make sense
1: no that makes sense to me Um, and actually when I was when I saw that it was like blood that it would be um, organized in the blood bones and butter when yeah i was reading the, the the blood part i was like oh yeah well that makes sense that she's talking about like her her history specifically with like her family and right and the right. Ab- abandonment stuff and like but also the happy times with it i was like yeah that totally makes sense as far as yeah. why she would put that in the blood category which made me wonder like okay so then what's going to be bones and butter is butter going to be like the successes of her life it's going to be like the <laughs> yeah well,
0: let's talk <laughs> right? about so, let's talk about how she calcified In the bones section, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is actually kind of true because when I looked back and I, again, did not feel this at all when I was reading through it because the segments don't come frequently enough to make me think this way, but it's her whole professional life. So it's after Mm -hmm. she's a child, then the bones part is when she makes her her work as a chef like it's from the catering to the summer camp to jumping around all that stuff the math the failed master's degree right at the end the writing program and or it didn't fail she got it, it did the disillusioned master's degree i should yeah. say so i think it makes sense that the bulk of the book is that is the bones it's the core of what she is and kind of if you're coming here for food talk it's maybe the most of it and everything i in my mind she cut off the blood section at the lobster massacre which i felt like that was to me when the disillusionment she had and kind of her own it's not even that she was elitist in that moment but she was trying to be nurturing and caring and it kind of failed and so it's just Mm -hmm. another thematic reminder of how she's trying to maybe make these families or these emotional connections and they just don't hold a bit of a bit of reflection of her childhood, maybe. And so I thought that was maybe where the blood part ended, but it definitely didn't. That was just another moment in in bone. I think given the trials and tribulations of this part of the book, especially with the master's degree, which we talked about in the other episode, I, I think it's fitting that it concludes at the conference then, which is an interesting section because I think, as I said, it outlays her ideas as kind of like, well, what, how do I want to be as a woman? Do I believe in feminism or what form of it? Do I believe in what wave as it were? Do I want, you know, that kind of a thinking, but I think the way she changes in that section kind of minute to minute feels, I don't know, very fitting to how she's been experiencing cooking in the world. There's a section I'll read from briefly on two fourteen to 15. That again, almost reads as kind of a, a state, a potent statement of her philosophy, So this is what I'll talk about here, or this is what I'll read from here. She says, If I told them how I joke and how I now pity the women who start families who have not been chefs, how I wonder earnestly how does the office worker woman who is so accustomed to her 40-hour work week, her daily lunch hour, her lunchbox, and her outbox, handle all the pain and physical contortions and the mayhem of a suckling, crying, ear infections, and working if she had never been able to skin a live eel, placate the angry patron at table 7 who finds his rabbit a bit stringy, and carry an epileptic line cook off the mats who has suffered a grand mal seizure during service. And now that I'm reading this, didn't you read this quote earlier too? It's worth reading again. But she's yeah. she's saying how do yeah, yeah. how will the woman who's accustomed to these bodily integrity suffer the cannibalizing feeling that nursing constantly leaves you with as if you're being eaten alive not in not in huge monster gore chunks but like a legion of soft benign caterpillars make lace of a leaf and she gives all that really quite divine imagery about the I don't know the eroding nature the the kind of tough realities of it anyway but it's I guess that is almost her professional ethos, as we've already kind of laid out, but I'll say it again for the essay purposes. It's She almost wants the suffering or believes it's so intrinsic to her, the work or her person that the the grind of it all is so much of who she is that that's really what she wants to convey to people, that you have to want that or desire it or at least be willing to endure it to kind of, I don't know, it, she makes it seem enviable, right? In that passage, she she wonders how mothers who are accustomed to different lives it's as if a 40 hour work week is it was some kind of privilege or something. I don't know, man, but I'm, you know, I've got my own v- theories on labor. Uh, I can send you some pamphlets if you want them. But <laughs> anyway, but the way it's, it's kind of deified it's, I think that's just the most concrete version of that. So I think it, her ending at that conference, feeling very torn ambivalent in that moment, not understanding where some of the women were coming from and the extremisms being thrown around, um, it felt like a good fitting conclusion to that part. The more I thought about, you know, that the bones was her profession, basically. How do, how do you feel about that?
1: I think that's a great reading too, because in, in the blood chapter, when she was talking about the, the lamb roast and like how her dad was in charge of roasting, her mom was back in the kitchen cooking all the other side beans. Right. And she said that her dad referred to it as preparing the bones. So bones right. in that sense also is about just cooking and like, that's her profession. All of these actually could be related to the lamb roast itself, right? The blood of the lamb, then you have the bones of the lamb and then you have the butter that was spread on the lamb as it was roasting.
0: Yeah, definitely. It was such a great opening scene too. Let's, let's talk about the butter section and final section. So, Let's think of this literally for a moment in a kitchen, especially professional kitchens as we've learned over the years. butter is just sort of that finishing touch that accompanies almost everything especially meat it's like it's all gonna get butter basted. <laughs> it's the final mm-hmm. thing that adds flavor and oom fununciousness and or whatever. So in that sense, I think of it as the moment with her stepmother then I think that in her life, her stepmother was a final touch, kind of a finishing touch of of her own philosophies and approaches. It maybe softens her a bit. Again, I also read that as kind of the, the way the children come into the narrative read that way to me as well. But it does kind of come across as like she... Is maybe lightening her approach to things, or becoming more slight in some of her approaches? I I thought it was kind of chaotic because of the her relationship with her husband throughout it is kind of baffling at times. I thought, but yeah. I still think in terms of its potency with that relationship with is it Alda? I think Mother Alda, yeah, Alda. M- Mother, mm-hmm. um, the way that that kind of puts just a little bit of a, a spin on something that his read is pretty acidic and harsh at times in her voice. I found that to really work. I kind of loved it. I think that the final scene with where they both answer to the mama, which she, she's disgusted by with her husband, but then answers. <laughs> but the way that, that it ends with kind of her becoming a sort Alda, you know, in a way that those mm-hmm. two merging – I think it's since she's aspirational, it felt kind of tragic because she loathes it out of her husband. Like she wants to have a better romantic life, but that also this is the kind of cook she was meant to be or the kind of caretaker she was meant to be. I thought it was kind of a nice little beautiful touching scene. And definitely, again, it's a little more delicate than some of the other parts of the narrative for her, I think. Because, you know, her descriptions of things, even even motherhood, can be so kind of harsh. Um, I think that section two... It also has maybe a good, clear statement of philosophy or belief on 250. She's talking about splitting the pods open and not talking because they can barely communicate. She says, What I've loved about cooking my entire life, especially prep cooking, is the way that it keeps your hands occupied but your mind free to sort everything out. I've never once finished an eight-hour prep shift without something from my life, mundane or profound, sorted out. A new way to organize the walk-in, an opening and closing line for an essay, a way way to prepare the zucchini. A likely reason I came to long for my green card marriage to an Italian man 11 years my senior to become something other, deeper than a piece of performance art, and why it never quite became that thing. And she ends with a, you know, it's a long drag out sentence as she loves to do in those moments of reflection, but I think it, it does show that cooking finally has a place of kind of peace and clarity in her mind. I don't think she ever had described cooking in such a clear and sort of helpful way before <laughs> it, mm-hmm. was so it was so combative is so battle. So battle worn the the language of it all even was, was kind of battle worn. So I think that moment. Yeah, it, it felt very peaceful. She almost feels at peace in the final section, despite getting a divorce and parts of her life falling apart. But yeah, the relationship with Alda does feel like, the final touches of butter kind of it adds richness to her life and maybe she's even content with it in a way. So yeah, looking back now, I, you know, what seemed like an alliterative, not even a crutch, but just a little clever naming title I think does have kind of some potency and it. It did help me make a lot of sense of an otherwise kind of swirling book. Um, I don't know how you feel about the final section.
1: Yeah. I, I really enjoyed, um, I just, I love her relationship with Alda because I think it's, It really highlights um, one of the the major things that helped me to kind of organize the book in my mind was um, her focus on, like, the search for family and the idea of, like, belonging to something. Um, And so it's like, you know, she started off with her um family and then she you know that falls apart and then she's got work and she tries to create like relationships within work and there are some betrayals there with her people who quit last minute and stuff like that yeah yeah (laughs) and then um her relationship with michelle is falling apart but like with alda it's it's pretty constant for her Mm -hmm. um despite the inability to to communicate um with words anyway but yeah Mm -hmm. i i the, the family aspect and the wanting a family and then kind of accepting or feeling accepted into the family by Alda. Um, I think it was a nice kind of way to, to tie everything together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciated it. And even at the end when she's clearing those bushes and chopping and hacking and it's, you know, she, I think she, as she should and deserves to, and, I just think she loves the pain of the labor of it all, you know? It's just, she's just someone who really revels in a tough job, toughly done. <laughs> just kind of, like, suffering through it, doing something imposing, making it work, you know? And just, I, you know, part, part of me really reaches out and wants to agree in that regard. And then part of me knows that, as I already went on about it, it's it's like a systemized, professionalized kind of thing, too, so it's complicated. But... All right, let's jump to the quickest Lost Pages segment we've ever done because I want to spend more time on the critical part. But we do like to end by talking about things that we maybe were underexplored in the book or you know, we call it the Lost Pages, things that maybe should have been included and weren't. I think I'm going to tie myself on this one. I'll go first because I want to set the tone on the speed here. I don't want to spend much time here. Yeah. Just add more family, please, especially her parents, which the way they come off is so esoteric and kind of difficult in the beginning. I just thought they would be a bigger presence in the book. They would influence more for life. And I think they do. Like we just said, I think there's a very subtle structure at play here. Um, And even though she kind of leaves them behind in the narrative, I think the presence is meant to be felt, but I really just wanted more. They seem so iconoclastic that I just thought they would, I just thought they would show up more, I suppose. Um, I think that's all I'll say to keep it brief, but how about for you? What was lost here?
1: Uh, For me, um, it was her marriage to Michelle uh, which we talked about earlier, but specifically like the lead up to it. Like, I, I, yeah. I get. Um, we get a lot of the, the discussion, not really discussion, but like uh, some of the scenes between her and Michelle when they're married. But like, she was in a lesbian relationship with her girlfriend at the time, and then, and she continues to refer to herself as a lesbian throughout the memoir. But then she's like working hard to keep Michelle and her family, and is like, upset about the lack of romance and stuff. It's very confusing, but yeah. I would love to see the, um, more of like how it is that Michelle convinced her to marry him and how he even like wooed her in the first
0: place. And she was already like in, and she, in she had some show. moments in there about how she left her Michigan girlfriend who was also working at prune, I think. But yeah. And so that was, bartender. that was explored. I'm not going to say it, it was sentimental or even that sympathetic, a uh, portrayal on her, but I don't, I think it came across as maybe a bit more cold than she intended even but mm-hmm. th- there was some description and falling out there but it's I think the lesson here is people if uh don't carry affairs to terms, so to speak like it's yeah. <laughs> some affairs are meant to be affairs I guess I don't know it certainly was one hell of a commitment based off of a a bit of a feel-good affair, so.
1: Yeah, did Michelle know about this, too? Like, I'm curious about that. never said
0: (laughs) that I can remember, yeah. I mean, it's, everyone wants to be wanted, but uh, when you turn that into two kids in 10 years, it's... (laughs) really quite a turn (laughs) and you you don't know why i mean that's a hell of a commitment to the bit as she says performance art so anyway yeah exactly (laughs) let's jump to the critical assistance i did want to spend more time here because i found i wanted to uncork a really potent one for this week so i just wanted to spend more time here this is the part when we finally end the pod on the book clubs talking about some outside criticism that we found could be from anywhere you know on the vastness of the internet so we like to end by you know going to other sources talking through other opinions Why don't you start us off, though? What what did you pull? What kind of quotes do you want to talk about?
1: Sure. Um, I pulled from NPR, um, and it's called Take Blood, Bones, and Butter, Add Poignancy, and Wit. And this is written by Jennifer Reese. Mm -hmm. And she says, this is Hamilton's first book, and I wanted more right now of that voice, that wit, that spiky sensibility. I I pulled that because I was like, is this the third book in a row of somebody's first book that we've chosen?
0: (laughs) Yes. And I think her (laughs) only book, to be honest. Maybe she has another yeah, we've got to type at this point. We've typecast ourselves in our book club. <laughs> um, but, hey, well done, right? Amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. No, no regrets on any of those picks. Feel great about it. Yeah. I don't know if people are still <laughs> listening at this point, but I, it doesn't much matter to me, I guess. We're picking good ones. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, she also says, Unlike Mario and Emerald and Bobby and Alice, Hamilton, the chef-owner of the Manhattan Bistro Prune, hasn't become a household name, and if she ever does, it might just be for her writing, not her cooking. While her roasted marrow bones may be great, her prose is virtuoso. Hamilton moves easily from rich metaphor to dark humor, from dreamy abstraction to the vivid and precise descriptions of anything from a maggot-infested rat to a plate of beautiful ravioli. And I pulled that one because... I loved her descriptions, especially when it came to food. I thought that she was just amazing mm-hmm. when it came to food metaphors and all that stuff like this. Um I've read a few uh food memoirs before, and I just I'm always struck with how well authors are able to like incorporate food metaphors and I thought that she w- did a really great job with that here mhm yeah, in this memoir,
0: yeah can't
1: disagree with that at all yeah um and she also um jennifer reese writes you can read this memoir on its most superficial level as another backstage expose of the chef's life um a I don't remember what that said. (laughs) Because Hamilton includes plenty of swagger, swearing, and drama on the brunch shift. But the book is even more interesting when she moves outside the kitchen. She has an eye for the telling detail and an ability to fold each experience back into her personal saga, giving every apparently random episode a critical place in the drama. And here, she's pointing out, just like I pointed out, that sometimes the organization seems disjointed um, at best. Um, But she does eventually fold everything back in and it all does tie back to um something that's going on in her life that she finds really important to talk about so um it she puts it in a way that that i thought was very nicely put in that yes it can be disjointed at times but it's for a purpose
0: i think that's uh, a generous i think you it, it would be very fair for someone to say it was a bit too chaotic for me yeah, I, th- I think that's a generous reading. The only way I got to where she arrived is because of the essay you made me think about <laughs> like that. That's, you that's know, <laughs> talk about an academics point of view. I find doing that kind of activity very helpful and constructive for my brain. But yeah, being forced to think back on them and look back over them. It helped me enormously. And I thought, oh, there is. Yeah, this this had a pretty clear, maybe not pretty clear, but it had something going on that did work, I think. But it just yeah. took me, you know, sometimes with complex things, your brain needs time to catch up. So, yeah. Yeah, completely. Did I you think. Agree. There's a quote in here I'm pulling, and now this is. I don't want to tread on your turf. No, but you're good. it says the book is more interesting when she moves outside the kitchen. She has an eye for telling detail and an ability to fold each experience back into her personal saga, giving every apparently random episode. Like, do you, you think that's true, though, outside the kitchen? You feel. <laughs> I don't know. Mm, I don't I don't actually agree with that because I think
1: that where she really shines is with her discussions of food. Yeah. Like I those are the things that stand out to me the most in my my memories of this memoir, which I only finished reading like last night, so mm-hmm. pretty vivid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fresh. But like with with relationships to people or with any other scenes, there's not as many um memorable things that pop out to me just because, not to say that she didn't write other things well, but just because the food aspects of it just really popped. And she obviously knows how to turn a phrase when it comes to those particular things.
0: Yeah. And it's through the lens of food that, again, it's when she describes babies and there's the suckling and there's all that language about eating and food and consumption. And then there's I, yeah, the other moments too. The lobsters, I'll, I'll always stick with that. The disdain yeah. for the KFC. Yeah. The, there's, a, yeah, it's it's food adjacent stuff. I, I guess she does rope in the personal with the professional really well, and or tie those things together really well. Rope them together. So I, I respect that part of that comparison, but I the food language is the the vivid kind of brilliant part of the book. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, any other thoughts on the on that one from NPR? Nope. Excellent, uh, harsh that it ends with what Hamilton really should have been doing all these years was writing. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, Hamilton, <laughs> I think would v- like vociferously disagree with that. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, given all the hospital, yeah. given her whole hospitality philosophy and all, and all, and the chaos, the hectic chaos, of nothing less physically draining than than writing. Though it, it's mental drain, and it, that can manifest physically, of course. But. You're not going to be able to beat yourself up in a war-like environment, you know, cranking out your book or whatever. Yeah. So anyway. Okay. My critical assistance this this pod comes from a blog. We normally pull from professional sources. We've got a a bit of a slant for the New Yorker here in the past and other, yeah, just professionally (laughs) published ones. I couldn't resist this, though, and I did read through about five to ten brief reviews or kind of reflections. I just thought this one hit on some stuff we had to discuss, so yeah. <laughs> I don't mind including a non-professional source. It's perfectly valid. The name of this blog, it's a website, actually. The name of this website is A Foodie Bib- Bibliophile in Wanderlust, which is by Beth S. Didn't didn't get a last name on the blog, and it's foodiebibliophile.com is where it's from, so... And to be fair, this is a review of the audiobook, which might matter. Um, Hamilton herself narrated the audiobook, by the way, as the review makes it clear. A couple of quotes. Let's talk about them. This is from the review. I don't often say this about writers because, in general, I find them to be wonderful people. But Gabriel Hamilton comes off as such a self-important snob that it was difficult to stomach listening to her drone on in this audiobook. There's the audiobook part. Since I am a teacher, I try to refrain from using expletives in my public online persona, but I am curbing an intense desire to swear while writing this review. I don't like to write negative reviews. I write critical reviews, but negative I try to steer clear of. I can't steer clear of being negative in this review because Gabriel Hamilton made it personal. Any thoughts on that, Amanda? I I don't know if this is fresh to you. Did you read the quotes I pulled ahead of time?
1: I did, and um, I do have to say that... I, I didn't feel like anything was personal, but I mean, she goes on to explain why she felt it was personal. But the yes. the yes. idea of um, Gabriel Hamilton comes off as such a self-important snob. I have to say that there are parts of the memoir where I just kind of like had to contain my eye roll because I felt like she was like humble bragging. Yes. In some places. Yes. And, like, her complete disdain, utter disdain for certain groups of people and certain professions and stuff, I'm just like, okay, (laughs) wow. Yeah.
0: She... she is a, it's a fascinating to try and sort her out it's very difficult to do as she herself says am i bourgeoisie i don't know she has such a reverence for just the slop and grind of a of a greasy backbreaking job and she's clearly up for the task like she likes that kind of life but then also has really harsh opinions about what people should or should not eat and and how they should consume it, yeah. it is a really weird juxtaposition i I found this line of criticism kind of funny because it's a memoir so I don't know what memoir makes someone seem non-self-important I don't it's intrinsic to the <laughs> to the form <laughs> I just thought that was such an odd way to start That's but a great yeah point. she because she writes in kind of a caustic way you can if you don't jive with the persona if you're if you're not a little generous and kind of letting her have her moment say her piece it's it's a memoir then yeah, I could see somebody coming away from this being like, well, she's just mean, you know, she's just mean, isn't she? (laughs) I was just, I could see that reading. Uh, I don't think it makes me comfortable given all the hundreds of complexities we've talked about for two episodes now, but yeah, I kind of get it though, too. I don't know. I I couldn't Mm -hmm. completely shrug that off. (laughs) Yeah. That was
1: one thing actually reading this, like, there were times where I was just like, okay, this is this is just a memoir, and it's just her thoughts. I mean, it doesn't detract from the memoir itself. It's, you may not necessarily get along with this person, but she's a great writer, so just keep that in mind.
0: <laughs> yeah. A couple more quotes I want to get through quick here. This woman is from Michigan. So this introduces specifically from the yeah. college town that yeah. Hamilton went to, which is why I could not resist picking this review. <laughs> Oh man, there's a long part about it. This is why I chose her basis this is a quote. Her basis for her assessment of Anarborites The fact that she wasn't able to cater events with Russian Imperial table service like she did in New York, and also because everyone in the city wears maize and blue. It's a college town. Ever hear of a little (laughs) thing called school spirit, Miss Hamilton? Basically anything Midwestern she appeared to find reviling and too, quote, down home for her tastes. So sorry we're not sophisticated enough for you here in the Midwest, Gabriel. She also goes on about the whole Harvard of the Midwest, quote, whatever, which... I read in the book as a straightforward compliment. She just doesn't like any academic institutions. I think she, I think she believes it was a good school, <laughs> yeah, and like yeah. an impressive program. But she's, I think she would have hated Harvard as much, maybe more. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> I, yes, it, it's that it was such a, an intensely negative episode in her life. She clearly hated that program, and that's all fine. She's, she can, I, couple things, or at least one. Did you get the sense when she was catering there? With a person with, by, she came to love deeply, by the way, they ate that greasy mackerel fish and she cooked those interesting recipes and she helped her open a Pan-Asian restaurant like, and did all the sourcing and like they had a, such a good food relationship together. But did you get the sense that she was really, I, I felt, I read her catering moment in Ann Arbor as kind of, I fall into old habits. I am the person I am. I like this kind of work. The, the brute force of it all i and i know she commented in there about how she kept doing the same things and the palette was simpler i didn't read it though is kind of i prefer new york she hated new york catering i thought this was an outright misread in this review i don't get this she hated the new york catering scene she thought it was annoying pretentious and the food was sloppy and basic and they cut corners and it was yeah they were serving it in a martini glass but it didn't mean anything and it wasn't good like i didn't I don't did you get that impression she she explicitly says that the food was simpler and they kind of cooked the same couple meats and like fudge brownies or what you know the, there was some commentary in there but I it wasn't like she was pining for going back to the shifts I I thought she looked at her New York catering time with a bit of disdain I don't, but what do you think?
1: The New York catering, I mean, I think just catering in general, right? There's a whole lot of stain there. Um, But with the New York one, I think that there, she definitely did draw some comparisons between New York Mm. catering and Michigan catering where she, you know, talks about how in Michigan it's like more common fodder rather than the, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's simpler. It's a lot of cheeses and stuff like that. Um, But, Despite that, I think that what she wanted to emphasize with that was that Misty made it better. Yes. In in how she organized it and stuff like that. Right. But the the food was still to her, like catering was still not what she wanted to do and right. it was not right. fulfilling yeah. despite, you know, all that stuff. And now there's not even like the glitter and glam of New York and I- to kind of
0: I I know the comparisons out. are in there. I guess in my reading it was just it, all of the catering got its got its attacks, New York whatever. She she had a pretty clear harsh disdain of those weddings that overordered and it cost too much or I don't, I just felt like it was all getting attacked. So plucking this out, bringing it kind of making it a Midwest versus all kind of a thing. I mean, you know, she seems to love the chaos of New York and that's where a restaurant was and all that. But I don't know. That one felt a little off to me. I was just like, okay. I mean, she hated your town to be sure or hated the program. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I understood, you know, Homer opinions. Um. Anyway, final quote I'll pull here. But insults to Michigan aside, this book was just odd. When writing about food, Hamilton is a master. She manages to help us see her passion and talent when describing those dishes that allow her to reminisce about the past. When it comes to writing about her personal life, however, it was awkward and uncomfortable. All of her personal relationships are bizarre at best, dysfunctional at worst. The basis for which she married her husband alone is strange enough, but then continuing to live apart despite having two children together? She honestly gave me nothing for which I could empathize with her, but maybe that's just because I'm an unsophisticated Michigander who doesn't understand the complicated lives of cosmopolitan New Yorkers. (laughs) Dang. (laughs) (laughs) So a couple things I want to unpack here and then I'll, I'll throw it your way. Uh, this is another quote. And I knew I had to use this one for this pod. Cause I, as I finished that quote, all I could think were two things. The first is, man, I really, you're not wrong <laughs> per se. Like I don't, I look at this and I think I agree with a lot of these assessments. And then my immediate second thought is, But this tone and way of writing is what I find so loathsome in most book clubs, which is kind of, I don't know why we made this whole endeavor or whatever, because it's just... None of it's wrong, but it's maybe all too simplistically said and none of it has any citation or analytical thought or it's just doesn't feel it just feels very shallow to me. So it's when I look at all of her personal relationships are bizarre, dysfunctional. That's not entirely untrue. But what about the relationships with her kids and the way that intertwines with food? What about Alda? I don't like it just all there's so much glints of truth in this. But then again, and I think the truth comes out in this review at the end. She honestly gave me nothing for which I could empathize with her. And then she concludes that this isn't the end, but she concludes by saying something like, if you want to feel good about someone's life, who has good things to say, or like who's a positive person, look elsewhere. Like those two things are such basic book club. In my mind, what makes book clubs boring is like, do I empathize with the main characters? Do I like them? And it's like, I, I never find those questions that interesting. I don't, I don't need those things as a baseline to think something is good or intriguing or worthy of praise or mer- has artistic merit or w- any of that stuff. Um, no, I don't think she's broadly likable. She's pretty bristly and is has harsh opinions and is kind of a corrosive person at times. But I think a lot of it's pretty raw and honest, too, and might say some things that other people would prefer to keep secret, which you know, is why it's a more compelling memoir than, than I don't know, just someone off the street or something. So right. I I just thought this quote had it all kind of going on. Like, in some ways it was true, and I nodded, and then I was like, man, I," but that's the kind of book club talk. It's just when you sit down in that book club circle and somebody goes, did you like it? And everyone's like, ah, she was mean. And then it's like, well, I guess we're done talking. And I I don't know. It just <laughs> felt that way to me. Like, it has that level of thought where I'm like, Man, I remember these conversations and I hate this so much. I hate this.
1: Yeah, and I, I had said earlier, yeah, like I, I think that her personality as it's portrayed in this memoir, it can be a bit grating at times. Um mm-hmm. but yeah. that doesn't detract from the the artistry of the book, the the beautiful um imagery that she creates, and it doesn't detract from her base like desire which is to feel loved and to feel like she belongs somewhere and that she belongs in a family. Like, I mean, I feel like that's Mm -hmm. a major component of this book that everybody can relate to. So to not be able to empathize with her, like, I don't really care, but at the same time, the themes that she introduces, I think are universal. Um, it's super specific in some ways, like with her cooking and with her particular situation, but everybody feels the same way at some point so to what what is going on with this particular blogger is that she just you know is is offended and and even just straight up right she says like why is she living apart uh, from her husband even though they have two children together but but well, she's very judgy
0: <laughs> well yeah. and I we touched upon that earlier too I said basically the same thing kind of like there's too many holes in this for me to see the big picture of it all I don't right. I also thought that was odd. I don't know if it deeply changed my reactions to the entire work or something. I yeah. maybe, I guess for some people it's at some point it becomes too many, it's too many violent, it's too many warnings. I don't know why I'm using like a police metaphor. So, but it's like, there's too <laughs> many small infractions that build to something grander, I suppose, where it's just there yeah. because there's too many personal oddities, you, you know, so at some point person just can't get over the hump with it. And the way it's structured and everything like that, I I, yeah. uh, I just, I don't know. I firstly, I thought the revenge stuff in Michigan was just hilarious. Couldn't give it up. Had to talk about it. Just, just wild. Love, love that. That was fantastic. Because you and I also thought that segment was like way, too, maybe a bit too far. But just getting it from yeah. someone with personal investment was uh, chef's chef's kiss. Uh, felt fantastic to read. But uh, the 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 line again. The thing about her relationships, which which dares upon analysis, I think comes really close. You know at you know bizarre like man it's her one of her best clearest relationships between both people and food aspiration to what she wants her life to be like her, it came in michigan like with her catering friend whose name i now can't remember but Misty Yeah Misty that like that was that was a good chapter two of the book like what about that mm-hmm. i don't i yeah it just seems like sometimes when you get into a rhythm or flow with a book or don't parts overshadow other parts and maybe rightly so but <laughs> It it seemed like that harmed maybe her um critical lens or something. Maybe it was a little cloudy. <laughs> and if if too, if we were to if this were
1: fiction rather than a memoir, would it be more forgivable then for those relationships to be bizarre and dysfunctional, right? I mean, like part of writing is to explore those messy relationships and because people right, are messy. Right.
0: Yeah. So even, yeah, and I think there's descriptions on the cover of, you know, this is really honest and this is really harsh, but honest or open, that kind of thing. And yeah, I yeah. think it it just is that. And it's, I don't know, ha- having thought about my own relationships with people maybe too much, it's, you end up thinking weird things at times. You end up, I don't know, making strange <laughs> connections and things you don't understand. And I don't know. Human mind's a mess. I, yeah, so. It's true. <laughs> maybe the, um, And maybe the the reason I softened on the structure so much is because of the essay thing you gave me, which then really turned me around on it, or just that little extra bit of a push to analyze. I think gave me greater appreciation. So it always helps to do that. Anyway, go check out that blog, people, if you wanna the foodie whatever it was foodie adventure. I I closed the document. (laughs) Foodie (laughs) bibliophile. Anyway, so yeah, something
1: like a foodie bibliophile.
0: not to not to be too harsh or whatever, because as I mentioned, there were parts of the review I nodded at for sure the whole I don't want to swear online because I'm a teacher thing like can we get, stop pearl clutching maybe so much teachers like I didn't swear at my kids either in person i that's just a matter of professionalism, but come on I mean, that's <laughs> it's your personal private life if you you know if you want to rip one off, go for it it's I, I don't want to be maybe so precious anyway um just just one old teacher's opinion. Any final thoughts on "Blood, Bones, and Butter" by Gabriel Hamilton? I believe our longest episode yet.
1: Uh, uh, No, I'm good.
0: A twisty and chaotic uh, enough of one to deserve the the title of that. I think. I think it's longer than "Bluest Eye." We've gone pretty long on that one too. Yeah. Two worthy ones. All right, this concludes the book clubs on this memoir, this food memoir, but we do have other choices and books coming up. Let's talk about them in order. The next book we'll be covering and a recommendation will come out on Monday is On Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Tei Yamashita. The book after that will be Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. And after that will be Wild in America by David M. Friedman. And wild is spelled with an E because it's Oscar Wilde. Those are the next picks we have coming up. As usual, or as always, we appreciate you listening this far into the pod. Appreciate your listenership. Check us out again on Instagram, Facebook, the Lightly Literary Podcast. And as always, we'll see you between the pages.